Welcome to the Speakers Collective Meaningful Conversation podcast series. The Speakers Collective is a social enterprise. We work together with a shared commitment to challenge stigma, facilitate important conversations and promote learning on a variety of social issues. To find out more about the Speakers Collective, visit speakerscollective.org. Don't forget to like, subscribe and of course comment. We hope you enjoy this meaningful conversation. So let's start with today's conversation. So today I would like to introduce myself. I'm Angela Samata and I'm going to be hosting and taking part in our conversation today. I have worked in suicide postvention, how we support people bereaved by suicide and prevention for the last 20 years. I presented the BBC One uh, Life After Suicide documentary and I also um, have worked together with uh, the Royal Foundation to put the building blocks in place for the Emergency Services Royal Symposium that happened last year and we've got another one coming up this year as well. I'd like to introduce you to Dr Sharon McDonnell. Dr Sharon and I have done lots of work together and continue to work together on many research projects. Dr McDonnell is the founder and also the director of Suicide Bereavement UK and we'll be putting the link into the Suicide Bereavement UK website so you can find out more information about Dr McDonnell's work there. Um, She's given me full permission to refer to her as Sharon today so welcome Sharon. And we're also joined today by Anne-Marie McStocker. Anne-Marie is the Health and Wellbeing Project Manager at Northern Ireland um, Ambulance Service. And Anne-Marie, Sharon and I met last year when we were piloting some training, which we'll come to in a second. So hello and welcome to this conversation, everybody. Hello, Sharon. I can, I can. Hiya. And hello, Anne-Marie. Hello, lovely to be here. And it's great to have you as well. I just wanted to start the conversation today because we are going to be talking about suicide and I know that for many people this is an emotive subject. So if at any point you want to leave the conversation today, please don't worry and you'll be able to catch up at a later date. One of the things I'd like to start with today is quite a startling statistic that I saw when we were first doing the work with our emergency services and the statistic came from a mind survey uh, that was carried out in 2015 and 2021 and in that survey of emergency service um, staff and volunteers 87% of those surveyed said that they had experienced stress and poor mental health um, due to their work and I'm just wondering Sharon and Anne-Marie maybe I can come to you first Sharon What do you think about that statistic? Does that reflect um, your experience as somebody who's done lots of research in this area? Yes, it does. And and what I want to highlight whilst we talk today is, uh, I know we're going to be talking about ambulance staff, but actually it's the whole of the emergency services. And what what I've done, I've interviewed police, ambulance, uh, fire service, RNLI, and actually I can join up the dots and whilst they all seem similar, these agencies, they're really not. And, and they all struggle and, you know, they don't have a voice. And this is what I think is important. This is why I do the work that I do, that uh, 
because they cannot speak out. They're not allowed to speak out uh, and they feel vulnerable, but they can through research. So for all I'm not in emergency services today, I will be their voice and I will reflect and it won't be diluted so that, you know, it's almost like a light bulb moment. One emergency service is aware of each other uh, service and the vulnerabilities that they face, but society, we're, all, we're not really getting this and we need to step up. Yeah. Anne-Marie, thank you, Sharon. Anne-Marie, um, any thoughts for you about the 87% of emergency responders talking about the stress that they're experiencing? Yes, and for ourselves, that's very much reflected in our suicide prevention and suicide risk research locally and across the UK. So our Association of Ambulance Services research in this area certainly confirms that and suggests that the risk is higher if you're male and higher if you work in ambulance services. So, yeah, very much. And I think you had a statistic, Anne-Marie, was it something like 17, your, your uh, risk of suicide is 17% higher if you are a male and working in the ambulance service. Is it, have I got that statistic correct? Yeah, that's correct. It is indeed higher. Okay. The, there's also evidence that the ambulance staff have the highest sickness rate in the NHS. And this is, I can't remember the reference now off the top of my head, but it's often this is stress related. Uh, so that in itself, you know, if we don't care about these people, you know, the people that care about the money aspect, you know, it makes sense. Keep these people well and they can keep working because they're really, really struggling. Mm -hmm. I'd like to add, Angela, as well, you know, uh, Yes, they do suffer from depression, but it, it's more than that. And we're not even onto suicide yet, but they see this, the things they're exposed to. Now, this is all the services, you know, sleep disturbance, alcohol dependence, uh, uh, severe anxiety, PTSD. This is research channels. This is not what we think. You know, suicidal ideation, uh, they're exposed to many traumatic events. And whilst this might sound dramatic, and I believe this to be true, and we've seen it many times, the emergency services run in when we run out, you know, and, and what I would say, if they run in and they know that some of the, just because they're running in, it doesn't mean they're not frightened. Often they're not trained on some of the things. Well, I think society and government should step up. If they're going to risk their well-being, the physical and mental health, we need to look after them and. Uh, I honestly don't believe that's happening. And what, what the people that have taken part in my research, that's what they're telling me. They feel like they haven't got a voice. And, and if they do speak out, nobody listens. So let's just have a think about the research um, that is going on, both the research that you've carried out, Anne-Marie, and the research that you've carried out, Sharon. Um, Sharon, you you led um, the largest, I mean, you know, in, in my experience, we always went abroad to look for the voice of those bereaved by suicide. So let's start by thinking about those bereaved by suicide. Um, and you, we always went abroad for the voice of the bereaved. We, we didn't have um, we didn't have our own evidence base here in the UK, but you actually were the lead um, investigator on the Grief to Hope report. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you saw emergency yeah. service wise when you did the um, Grief to Hope report? Because that was the voice of what, 7,000 over 158. Wow, yeah. 7,158 voices of those bereaved by suicide. So what I want to highlight is as well, you know, it's not them and us. 
it's we we shop in the same places we watch the same tv we're all worried about our electric and gas we're all the same they do this job that many of us wouldn't would be too frightened to do so when we did this study it was about people bereaved and i'm going to keep saying this and affected because it's only in the past few years that we're thinking oh well maybe these people that are exposed to suicide or us because i'm personally bereaved by suicide might struggle so this survey was for anyone who was bereaved or affected by suicide we had 1000 i think 1600 job titles we had loads of emergency services you name you name a profession they've took part in this and uh, so they were aged between 18 and 84 and we asked these people uh have they been exposed to suicide or have they lost somebody and when we start what we do uh, for those that are not familiar with research people put information in in, in the boxes and, and if it's not relevant it's called cleaning the data so we had one where it was uh, in the workforce so we'd get people saying how many suicides have you been exposed to this is in the workplace now uh and if someone wrote hundreds too many to mention, they had to be deleted, they had to have a number. So we started analysing this data. And then, so we, you would expect everyone's had one loss because you've got the bereaved like myself, and then you've got professionals. That, and uh, we got 70. So after we cleaned the data and took the word hundreds out, because it wasn't an actual number, I thought, 70, what, what, what's that about? So I asked the researchers, can you go back to the data? This is a bit weird. It can't be 70. Who is it? What, who are they? Well, well, it made sense when it came back. Crime scene investigator. Now, what I want to highlight here, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining some of you will be shocked, not those in the emergency services, because some of I've subsequently learned a lot more are exposed to more than 70 but for every suicide, we have, say, 6,000 on average suicides. How many, we don't know this, how many service personnel are exposed to one suicide? So you've got the ambulance staff, you've got the police, you've then got the crime scene investigator. And we know, absolute fact, those that take, took part in the study, bereaved or affected, we put you all together, 82%, so that's nearly everybody, regardless of you're personally or professionally affected it had a major or moderate impact on them so this in itself is you know I don't know if it shocks anybody but uh I was shocked at 70 I'm not now I'd be interested to see if if uh, in the chat if anyone passes comments on this whether they're shocked or not shocked or you know and, and so we highlight this we know fact if you're exposed to suicide you're at risk of dying by suicide so if we know that we know they're exposed to many and it has a major or moderate impact well we need to do something and we need to do something now sharon thank you so much and what we've done is we've actually helen is um is has very kindly um put the link to the grief to hope report in the chat so if anybody does um hasn't seen the grief to hope report you can get a free copy of the grief to hope report with lots of those findings in um, and the link to it is actually in the chat there and marie from your point of view is that what you're seeing as well are you hearing from your amb ambulance um personnel are you hearing about that impact of um attending um the scenes of, of if there's been a suspected suicide is that is that what you're seeing as well 
Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose in many ways, historically, it was expected. You could expect coming into a role in emergency services, what the job is going to be like. And you have some level of awareness, just listening to colleagues about the impact it's going to have. I suppose for ourselves working in this area, it's about looking at what we might be able to do so that people are aware of what's expected. We can normalize responses and then we can also flag up when something tips into a response that wouldn't be expected, a response over time, for example, that's more likely to cause you mental ill health long-term or on wellness, well, then that's where we can, can complete our interventions us and we can support staff to make them aware of what to expect, what wouldn't be expected and how to get support if you're concerned. So yeah, there's a mixture of both, but I think to see a statistic, and this is why the like of, of Sharon's research, the like of our own COVID wellbeing survey and HS, HSC survey was so useful because I think research confirms what we know, but it does give us a way to present this, to look at, well, what's the best evidence that we have about what works as well? What are colleagues using research as a platform to say what they think works best for them and what the interventions might look like? So definitely it's, it's good to have that research there to highlight it. I think, I think for me, it's absolutely vital that we have that voice of lived experience. And I've just seen in the chat there that we have somebody who's a retired um, police personnel person, you know, saying about their lived experience as well of this. And I think it's absolutely vital. When we did the, um, when I did the, the groundwork and, and helped to, um, think about the the symposium that was put together um, by the Royal Foundation. Um, you know, part of that came from the fact that um, the then uh, Duke of Cambridge, William, now Prince of Wales, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not very good with all the titles, um, but it came from his lived experience as somebody who had been part of the air ambulance service for seven years and what he'd seen and what he'd heard his colleagues experience. That's where it came from. It came from um, him being a champion um, for everybody who works in the emergency services and really wanting to use his platform, if you like, to try and make a difference. How important is it to have those champions and those people who are willing to talk about their lived experience within our services, Anne-Marie? Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose it's similar to what we're doing today, it's lifting the lid on it. And that's certainly what we found when we did this training, when we launched our peer support programme, it was a bit of a you know, everyone took a deep breath, said, it's great to be talking about this. It's great to have a space to talk. So everyone, you know, the narrative, we know how this is for people. We know how this is for colleagues, but just to have a shared space to talk openly. So certainly champions help with that. It helps to raise the profile. In a very practical term, it helps someone like myself or ambulance services when we're looking for resources, when we're looking at prioritization of resources, it does help to have those champions to raise the profile of this area of work and what we're trying to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sharon, did you want to come in there? Yeah, so I totally agree with Anne-Marie about lifting the lid. This is, this is, today is really special. You've got two people bereaved by suicide that have actually got that experience and they're doing something with it to make a difference. Talking to somebody from an ambulance service, you wouldn't have got this five years ago. So this is really taboo. We are really lifting the lid up. And on top of that, we've got people chatting and they're going to say things. So we need to build on this. You know, we do research, people take part. But these are very special conversations and, and it, it takes it takes 
people like like you and Marie as well, you know, not bereaved, but having to do all this. It takes people to have the strength to stand up and be counted because people will look, they will listen. And often I think it gives other people courage to say, well, maybe I might speak out. But the key is, I think they have to be listened to. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. You know, it's not just enough having courage. It's it's the work that the senior employers need to step up as well. And we'll have a little chat a little bit later on about what's actually happening on the ground to address some of these, um, some of the some of what we're all seeing. And we've just got a couple of questions here I just wanted to bring in. Um, one is um, asking about um, is the group of on average, uh, you know, when 70 people sharing in your research um, that crime scene investigator has experienced over 70 um, uh, scenes of suicide. And um, is that in addition to the 135 people? So Julie Sorrell um, did some research. Uh, and looked at how many people on average are affected by every suicide. It used to be, I remember those days, as, as I'm sure many of you do, in, when we sat in conferences and people talked about between six and 10 people uh, being impacted by every suicide. And then Julie Sorrell did her research in 2014, which said actually on average, it's about 135 people uh, impacted by every suicide. So Sharon, is that 135 figure and the 70 figure separate? I mean, I think they probably are I, oh no i'll explain i'm not explaining myself very well yes yeah, so on average is 135 people affected some of those people will be profoundly affected they could be bereaved or affect you know say emergency services going out that so that's one person has been exposed to 70 suicides actual suicides so that's different than the 135 okay. uh, so so julie sorrell in, in the u.s she i think she said 30 i think 31 police officers now in America is 30 on average is 30 exposed to 31 suicides in the career. So, you know, uh, do you know, at the very least, we need to know. L let's do a large scale study on this. And, uh, you know, we don't know. And if we don't know, we don't do anything. If we know, well, then people have to act, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and Marie, um... I've just had a, a, a again the same question really. What are you seeing in your ambulance service personnel? Are they are they exposed to many suicides and, and, and suspected suicides? What what are you seeing in your um in your personnel from Northern Ireland? Yes, it would absolutely be similar. Certainly there would be those groups of, of our colleagues who would be exposed to more suicides than than the general population, maybe to co colleagues in other roles and other trusts so yes there will be increased exposure for sure and even more recently with the demands on two people ambulances going to scene what we found is the like of our rapid responders are going uh, on their own to a lot of these uh, calls to the respondent to a lot of these needs in the community and that's increased risk for them because they're going on their own and they're more likely to be going more regular Okay. Than others. So that's something I suppose that we're aware of that we do track again with our peer support program it allows us to see who's going to what, what people are responding to. And whilst it is certainly part of day to day roles, we do need to see are there people being more exposed? What are people 
you know, being regularly exposed to so that we can offer support if they need it. Because that, I suppose, something to consider. Yes, when you step into a role like this, you've signed up to it, you're there to do your, your job. And in fact, we've, we've had examples of post-traumatic growth where people feel when they've done a good job, when they've been able to respond in a good way, that they've been able to provide support, they're, at, you know, they're in, in their best Form themselves to respond we can have improvement we can have growth for people in their careers and yet in your own life if something changes something that maybe was more routine that you were able to cope with last week last month the last 10 years something changes in your life and all of a sudden you know it's impacting you more so I suppose we take that approach that whilst everyone is mostly well they're responding we don't want to pathologize people we don't want to to be saying you know unnecessarily that you're you're going to expect this or that this is going to happen but we do need to keep an eye on and let people know if you're experiencing this 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 is where you can get support and we need to be contacting them to say here's the support available and Anne-Marie, can I just stay with you for a second? Because I know that's when um, Sharon and I have spoken to lots of emergency service personnel from lots of different um, services. One of the things they do talk about is this idea of vicarious trauma. And I know you've done a lot of work around trauma. Is the impact on our, on our, on our emergency service personnel, is it the idea of vicarious trauma that they're going into, again, that idea of everybody else is running away and they're running into a situation and they're the people that we call. It, is the impact around that idea of vicarious trauma, you know, the real impact of seeing other people's distress on a, on a kind of regular basis and being exposed to, well, we'll you know, witnessing multiple exposures of that. Is, is that something that, that your emergency service personnel talk about? It is, and yet I would want to say that over longer periods of time, we know looking that at our own evidence and listening to our colleagues, if you're a student, for example, if you're new in, in post maybe a year, below a year, up to two years, up to five, there's a higher risk that you will be negatively impacted and that you'll need more support. So we certainly get that message out there. I think my colleagues would definitely want me to say that and when you're longer in these roles, you do develop a certain amount of resilience to it. Your practice is improving and you're there, you know, benefiting from your role and being able to support people and being able to do your best. I think what we do find, though, is there's something about short spaces of time. So if in two or three shifts in a row, one shift, two or three calls in a row, and definitely that other aspect of your own life. So things can shift in your own life that mean that something that was not a problem that you routinely were coping with, responding to, that could change for you. So we keep an eye on both of those things. We certainly keep an eye on what any individual's being exposed to in a short period of time, and then that impact of what's going on in your own life. And of course, that's where we rely on our colleagues that have maybe experienced a change in their own life, who maybe you know didn't use peer support services, didn't use or inspire our public health service before. It's about making everyone aware that it's okay to do this. And yeah. that's another aspect of our role is that lifting the lid, making sure that everyone's aware if anything does change for you, you could have been retu routinely been able to cope and something could change. It's still OK. 
Thank you, Anne-Marie. And just, be, just before we move on to um, the part of the conversation where I'd like to talk about those bereaved by suicide and what, what people like me uh, might need from our emergency services and, and, and how we can work with our emergency services. Sharon, I just wanted to come to you because I just wonder whether what Anne-Marie's just talked about in that um, repeated exposure um, over time. Um, is that something that you've seen mirrored in your, um, I know you've done specific a specific research paper with ambulance um, service personnel. Is that something that you saw? Not really. Okay. So, sorry, Anne-Marie, but the, you know, it's not, I'm not, I can only say what people have told me. It's like having a car, you have a bumper on your car and you keep banging it, banging it, banging it. At some point it'll fall off. And I would say, just because you're exposed, this is what they tell me, I've never been in the emergency service, just because you're exposed to one and then maybe two, maybe 15, maybe 70, it doesn't get any easier. But what I want to add, because I mean, and I sound like I'm the troublemaker in this conversation, I, I, I'm speaking up for these people. So peer support is brilliant when it works. But what some of them tell me, uh, and this is right across now, this is not ambulance, this is right across that peer support, some people feel that uh, it's not real. The people, peer support, they might understand, but if they all have a drink, they all might have a chat. Some people do the peer support bit or the, you know, uh, trim for the for the career. And uh, when they do that, you know, to get promoted, but really they don't really care. This is their perception. And, and I think, you know, we have to listen to that because if they don't feel safe and they don't feel... Uh, and, and one police officer, he was, uh, I've just got to share this because it's really important, because you're absolutely right. These people are like us. And sometimes one told me he ran into a scene, it was a young person, and he ran in there as a dad, not as a police officer, and uh, absolutely struggled. And, and what, he, what this person said was, you know, I, I give everything I provide we provide an ex, an exceptional service which you do most of the time and so when we struggle we should have excep, exceptional support and they're not getting that you know it's we'll aim for that but they're not getting it yet thank you and and Sharon can we just have a look at your uh the research that you did with the ambulance service because you did a paper didn't you which um we've got the link to and we can share the link but you actually spoke to um, the ambulance service, didn't you, about what they were, yeah. the impact of, of um, attending yeah. suicides on them? I'll just give a little brief history on this because I was doing, those are familiar with the PAB study uh, training. There's a, we, we did a three-year study that funded uh, £243,000 to, to look at the experience and needs of people bereaved by suicide and the professionals that come into contact with them. So originally we was looking at parents and then those that came into contact with them would be the GP, mental health professionals. And we said A&E staff, which was a bit naive. And you learn as you go along. This was the first of its kind. Well, they don't parachute themselves into A&E. It's, it's obvious, but it wasn't to us at the time. It was ambulance staff. So we, we changed the study. But me, during that time, I was applying for funding to look at ambulance staff because I started getting and they went, uh, and I put this bid in, and, and at the time, this was about eight years, ten years ago, the ambulance trusts were known for not engaging or very hard to engage in research. She just didn't engage in it for whatever reason. I'd got one trust totally on board this, and this was about looking at the experience of ambulance staff. And I put this bid in. It was a brilliant bid. Uh, I don't know who the hell reviewed it, and they come back, and they went, 
you know, not getting funded because ambulance staff deal with loads of traumatic events, provide evidence that they have. So I interviewed nine people on the PAB study, put the bid in again, and I got told no again. So no wonder they don't want to engage in research if they don't think this is. So that paper, I really want to uh, advise as well, uh, I think it's going to go in the chat. If there's people bereaved by suicide on this chat, I would advise them this is very heavy reading. So I would say they keep away from it unless they feel, you know, it's quite graphic. But we've had to be graphic because if, if people are going to know, or commissioners or whoever, they have to know how bad it is. So if they read that, they will. But I feel quite annoyed about this. And, and I'm, I try to make a comparison, you know, and it might sound dramatic, but I don't think it is. And, and any of the emergency services can, can write in the chat. If you go to war, if you're in the army, you go to war, you'll go or, or you'll go on tour for four months, say, you come back and you have R&R &R and that's real. you go home and you relax. Well, especially the ambulance, I would say, because there seems to be less of them. They're like, they're working in that environment all the time, but they don't get R&R. &R. They just get the same holidays as we get. And I think, you know, I think if you put it in that kind of perspective, because they're exposed to their refugee stuff. And I think what we haven't added, which to give balance, the, the police and the ambulance, they'll go out to people that have attempted suicide or are suicidal or were frightened, who are angry, and they get attacked. And, and I've spoken to those that attacked. They get them in an ambulance where there's needles and everything. You know, is that right? I don't know. We need to look at all of it because a lot needs changing, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think, again, I think, Anne-Marie, you would probably echo um, some of what Sharon's just said. Um, just for a second, I'd just like to um, change the conversation just very slightly, because there were two areas that people asked us to talk about. One, um, one was about how our emergency service personnel respond when and the impact on them of attending to suicides and, and, and attending scenes. So that was one area that I wanted us to talk about. But the second area I'd like to talk about is what those bereaved by suicide have told us that they really need from our emergency personnel. Um, and I suppose that's where kind of almost the other side of the coin, when, when we were writing the um, responding to suicide training and we did the, you know, we, we looked at what our emergency service personnel wanted. Part of what they wanted was to feel more confident and to have the skills in order to um, talk to us bereaved by suicide, either at the scene or afterwards. And they really wanted us to build up their confidence in, in doing that. And I think from my own personal experience, the way that I was treated um, on the evening that my partner very suddenly um, ended his life, um, and I, obviously I was there, the way that I was treated by the emergency services was so fantastic and, and really a, a, an example of best practice, I think, now look, looking back. Um, I think the way that I was treated really enabled me to kind of, um, to, to, to go on on grieving rather than being stuck in that moment where maybe somebody had said something wrong or you know somebody had, had, had treated me in a way that that meant that I was stuck you know in that in that moment you know there so I think my treatment really and the way that I was attended to was so um exemplary really um that it made me want to share my 
experience of that um because i think we can learn from best practice as well as learning from um what you know maybe when things haven't gone so well um and marie how important is it from an ambulance point of view and sharon i'm going to come to you directly after this how important is it from an ambulance point of view that we equip our ambulance service personnel with the right language and the, you know the confidence that they need in order to talk to people who may have just that just minutes earlier been bereaved by suicide absolutely important essential essential is what I would say because that's what I got back that was the feedback I got back from my colleagues was why have we not done this training before it's, it felt like it was essential it had changed I would say 80% of the people who had attended and responded to me had said they had changed their practice it had given them real insight into the impact and actually I want to mention that two three of my colleagues had got back to, to mention those first few vital moments so if you work in emergency services you're aware of the time the the quick response and yet even in this scenario from this training they were saying about those first few moments those first few words that this training had really focused them on the importance of it and had given them that that very safe uh, it was one of the things that was said about a relaxed environment relaxed environment was one of the repeated terms that that my colleagues had had used about the training and the impact of that environment was that people were able to be honest maybe for the first time ever they were able to ask a question that they had that they never felt they could ask before um, because of their professionalism because of their role and it provided them with that opportunity to ask the question. And you'll remember this. The questions were things like, what do you say? And that's something that's not part of the training. You're there to do a medical response. And yet we know you're there as a human yourself. You're there as a person with your family, with your own connections, your own concerns, your own pressures. And that, that struck me on the day. And, and also from the, the responses was, what do you say? And, and it was I, great. I should say that um, the responding to suicide training, um, which was co-produced with um, with uh, an individual who had been a serving police officer for thirty years, um, the responding to suicide training, Amory's um, trust was one of the first people to um, receive that training and was was part of the pilot for that. And we can put the the link to that uh, that training in in the chat as well. Um, Sharon, can I ask you the same question, please, about um, people bereaved by suicide? You and I have both gone public with our, our personal bereavement. Um, how important from your point of view was it that, and, and what did our emergency personnel tell you about how they wanted their confidence to be increased when they were attending and, and talking to people like us bereaved by suicide? Yes, the, the very workshop, I'm gonna make a comparison here between, it sounds a bit random, a painter and decorator. If you're a painter and decorator, they give you a paintbrush. You know, I mean, the emergency services are going out to all these suicides. At the very least, when they're dealing with this difficult stuff, which evidence says the struggle, let's give them that paintbrush, give them them tools. And what they tell me is that, that uh, say, say the ambulance staff, we've not mentioned the fire, by the way. And in my ignorance, I didn't realise how much the fire service do when there's a suicide so i think i think that's a bit remiss here we need to talk about them as well you know that the, the frightened 
they don't actually say that word, but it's what it is. They're worked up, they're open, the ambulance are open, the police get there, the police are open, the, you know, because it, the, you know, and everyone that's on this train uh, listening today, we've all done this. If you don't know what to say or what to do, you either say nothing or you blurt something out that's inappropriate. And that is not fair to the staff, they need empowering, and it's not fair to the bereaved, because let me tell you, they, they, they will remember if you're kind to them or not. They will like it's like a video still frame. But what I want to highlight more as well, which I think is really important, emergency services have told you're at risk of dying by suicide. So you've got one high risk group rushing out to another high risk group without any training, guidance, or support. Things are changing, but it needs to be speeded up a little bit, I think. But I think when you were having these conversations, one of the things that really came across to me was how they were asked, you know, our emergency services were asking, they wanted their confidence to be increased and they wanted to have a conversation about what language should we be using? You know, it was basics, wasn't it? It was around, should we be saying committed suicide? Should we be even mentioning the word suicide? Are we going to make the situ situation worse? You know, um, and, and I think it, it was about that confidence, wasn't it, Sharon? It was about yeah. wanting to do a really good job, like wanting to get it right, you know, really wanting, but never being offered the chance to speak to a bereaved person. Then they can ask, like, what do you want me to say? You know, what do you want me to do? Yeah. So I'll give you a perfect example, you know, because I, I don't I don't think I'm the only one, but the ambulance staff. We think you come with your charger and a white horse. We all love you. When we hear that alarm, when, when we need you, you know, we we, we all love you. And uh, so this one explained to me, you know, there were two of them and he was the faster runner. So he ran upstairs. The person had died. It was a suicide. I was absolutely petrified because he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to say to the because he didn't have to deal with that. And what they tell me, you know, and, and uh, this is specific to ambulance staff, they can deal with trauma, trying to save a life. It's all this other stuff. But I want to touch on something, Angela, that you mentioned as well. You know that uh, that oh, I've lost, I've lost it now. I've, I've, I've lost my train of thought. So yeah, we we can come back to you, Sharon. I'm sure you'll. I'm sure it'll. Um, I'm sure it'll come back, back to you. Um, Anne-Marie, we've had a question here, uh, and thank you so much to everybody who's popping their questions in. Technology is wonderful, isn't it? They, they pop up on my other screen um, as if by magic. Um, we've had a question here about, do we know the percentage of people leaving their posts due to um, traumatic experiences? Do we, do we know that number? I've got a figure here from the 2015 Mind survey that talks about 27% of people surveyed who reported that they'd experienced trauma had also considered ending their own life, uh, which again, I found shocking actually um do, do you have anything um on the um northern ireland um ambulance service data there of, of how many people leave and what your, what your retention is like i would say certainly historically we didn't have issue with retention we hadn't high turnover of, of colleagues we hadn't a high turnover of staff what we've seen in more recent years that is becoming an issue it's becoming an area of concern and i will say that whenever people are leaving they're asked you know what has led to this in particular if they're leaving early it's not something maybe that's shared widely but if there's 
like growing themes, trends, we would certainly be picking that up. But again, the usefulness of today is to highlight this, are we asking? And it was one of the benefits of that AES, the Association of Chief Executives Forum that they brought together in 2019 to specifically focus on suicide risk for ambulance personnel. That was brought together because we were seeing more and more people leaving ambulance services, more and more people um, self-harming, experiencing suicidal thoughts, suicide ideation. So because of that, we do have that forum that has came together, has brought together the best research, done our own research on this so that we can convert that into practical actions, practical support. So I I suppose that's my role here. Sharon's passionate about it. She has met the people the same as myself. She's listened to her colleagues and that's her experience of, of the difficulty that people are having. I want to bring that right up to 2022 and say that we are getting there we're certainly in a different position with regards to services with regards to research and evidence and the focus on this area it's that focus isn't it and keeping the focus to to keep it top of the agenda with all the pressures that we have yeah I think one of the things I'd I'd just like to point out and and again I was felt privileged to be part of the piloting of uh, of this uh, responding to suicide training which we came to your trust Anne-Marie that's how we met to 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 work with the Northern Irish um, police and ambulance service and one of the things that I was totally impressed with when you brought together the group of people who piloted the training was the fact that you had the call handlers in the room Um, and it was wonderful and I think we were all very uh, touched by the conversation that happened because you could hear a pin drop when the call handlers were talking about the impact of hearing those calls coming through on their headsets and um, trying to think about who they could get there the quickest but also listening to people's distress um, you could hear a pin drop and I really noticed how attentively uh the ambulance personnel were listening to the call handlers because i think it was a real moment where they'd never really heard each other's experiences before i mean sharon i i was floored by that because those two two groups of people who work so closely hand in glove and the call handlers had never really talked about their experience of hearing that level of distress before had they Do, do do you remember that sharon yeah, I, I can add to that if you like. I uh, So I keep saying dot to dot, you know, you've got the emergency services and you're all, whether you're different professions within anything, you're all cogs in a wheel. And if there's one that's not working, well, then it just doesn't work. And so I've interviewed uh, call handlers and, and they explain to me, because quite often in the ambulance service, so I've been told, I don't know if it's true, they do. They start that job, and then they might decide to work to work. You know, work the way up. To you know, they we have all our senses when we're exposed to tr- whatever we smell, we see, we hear. They yeah. just hear. Yeah. And uh, what we do is, and we all do it. If you fill in the gaps, they're under pressure. They're going back on the radio while the per. You know, they're giving them information while they get to the house, yeah. and then once they get to the house, that's it. But the phone rings and they never know what happens to the other. But then the next one might be an emergency. But I think you've got the call handlers that have that. But let's get real here, say for the ambulance. And I sound like I'm criticising everything. I'm just highlighting stuff so that we can do something with it. There should be some kind of monitoring. You shouldn't have to do one suicide after another suicide after another. And then on top of that, 
which adds into the equation, you know, a lot of these people, whether whichever, you know, police, ambulance, they work in the same area, they live in the same area they work. So they're going out to colleagues that have died. They're going out to colleagues' family, you know, and there's all this complicated stuff yeah. that uh, yeah. we haven't even touched on, which you could spend a full hour on that. I, I think I think that's the yeah. thing. When I went back with the B, with the BBC camera crew and found the the um, they found the 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 policewoman who'd helped me that night, and um, and when we went back, you know, I said I've often wanted to thank you, but I didn't know how to get to you. You know, I knew how to write a you know, I knew how to complain, but I didn't know how to say thank you. And one of the things she said that floored me was that she thought about me just as often as I'd thought about her, because I, I was on her, you know, in, on her patch. And so she thought about me and wondered what happened to me, but I constantly wanted to thank her, but we had no way of connecting with each other, you know, so it was just very interesting. And Marie, thank you so much for making sure the call handlers were in the room on that day because it, it was just fascinating hearing the relief in their voices as they as they talked about their lived experience yeah but i sharon had mentioned about cogs in the wheel the cogs are going so fast and that's a huge factor here and a huge yeah. benefit of yeah. this type yeah. of training the cogs are going so fast and people do often know each other they're in the similar shifts together mm. it's getting the spaces and as an organization with supportive public health agency and others it's about making that space and saying we're going to fund this space we're going to you know, cover shifts, we're going to cover rotas for people to enable them to attend. It's all of those bigger cogs that make training like that happen. It's the space happening to allow people to reflect. There is no time, there's no opportunities, and you're reflecting maybe with the person beside you, you're reflecting on your own a lot of the time. It's making that space for people to actually listen and talk to each other. And I would agree that was one of the most powerful things was, first of all, why aren't we doing this more often? Mm. But uh, of course, it's this world we're in. It's yeah. moving so fast that we do need to take opportunities and make it top priorities. Set pause. Mm. So we've just coming up to the last 10 minutes now. I can't believe where the time has gone. This always happens, doesn't it? When you're really passionate about a subject, time just goes so quickly. So we're just into our last 10 minutes now. So if you do have any questions at all, please do um, continue to put them um, um, in the chat and I can see them coming up on my screen here. Lots of them we're addressing as, as we're talking, but if you do have specific questions, then please do um please do ask them um in the through the chat um the links to both the pubs the um postvention suicide postvention training and the rts the responding to suicide training have both been put in the chat but we can pop those um back in again now um and marie just um we're just in our last few minutes now but i just wanted to hear about the peer support that you have um actioned within your trust because it sounds to me as if it's an example of best practice and am I right in saying that the peer support at the moment isn't mandatory it's something that people can link can opt into if they feel that they they would like to do that yeah it's certainly not mandatory and never would be a service like this I don't think ever would be but what it is is it's established to make sure that we have a system of identifying who requires the support who requires a contact and we make sure within that 14 day time scale everybody's contacted we certainly do our best but I suppose the background of of this is similar to how we came to this 
training with yourselves and make these connections because it came from colleagues it came from our station officers from in this case it was a, an officer and a colleague who had attended one of your events one of your conferences oh, okay. and had picked it up brought it back to myself and said look we're blown away by this they did the training themselves and then we started to look at well what would it need to specifically look like for ambulance and i think certainly a colleagues ps and i would say something similar that the difference one of the differences of this particular training was that because it was designed based on research with emergency services even the scenarios on the day the conversation on the day they could really engage with it um, it, it made sense to them and allowed them to make the most of that training opportunity so that was one thing but again back to it came from colleagues who had heard about it who had experienced it and then brought it back to the organization to look for funding to look for support from our public health agency who supports this type of work so they had made the connections in the first place and that was the same for peer support it was critical incident stress management training um, that our colleagues have become aware of. They had bought it back and with the support of, of, our, of our senior team, we had looked at, well, how do we implement this across ambulance service? So we started off with two people seconded into the role. They themselves, and this was critical, are emergency roles patient and non-patient. So we have representatives from control, we have representatives from paramedics and from frontline. And they really are, are the crux of it because they're using their own experience, they're using their training, they're using the support that they're being given with myself and others to roll out the service. And I think it is that lived experience, isn't it? It's people being very honest and open about their lived experience. Um, Sharon, would you like to reflect on the on the impact that the that training personnel and giving them a chance to, um, to to kind of just have that space to recognize their own? I mean, I think I'm right in saying when we were in the room, there were people there that had been in their positions for over you know, 20 years. And they said that in the last 10 years or ever, they'd never had any specific training um, on how to um, respond to people bereaved by suicide. Yeah, so the emergency service is generally kind of considered to have this kind of uh, macho kind of, can't show your emotions. A lot of the men can't talk. Well, let me tell you, I'm not a clinician. They spoke to me and I think in the research and uh, and that extends to the uh, the training that we developed. We have two trainers. We don't just train because if you create a little bit of a safe place where they can, they can talk, you have to deal with the stuff that can come up. But you know yourself, uh, Angela, they could talk. But I think what it's it wasn't magical, are we? I didn't come with a wand. What a lot tell me this is the, this is ambulance fire, not so much police. I didn't really touch on this. They say you've taken away what they used to do to regulate themselves. So the ambulance service say you'd have a room and they would, they explain to me, oh, Johnny's had a bad case, he's going to be in in a minute. All men, don't say a word. One will make him a drink and know how many sugars he has. The others will clean his ambulance. They've not got that. Like you said, Anne-Marie, a lot, they're all alone, they're on a side, there's just two of them. And, you know, ambulance staff will say, which surprised me, they think A&E, you know, A&E think they're a nightmare because actually they are bringing all the nightmares. They're sort of adding to the workload. And so they've got all this kind of stuff. So I think they need to be, they need, it's not hard, I don't think, but it costs. And equally, all, you know, each force, if they were given a bit more money and more staff, 
that would sort the cogs out. They wouldn't have to go as fast. They wouldn't have to do, and, and you can only work with what you've got. But these people can talk and welcome the opportunity to talk with each other like it happened when we did the training in Northern Ireland, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that there are so many areas that, that we could we could go into. But I I just want to point out, we've had a, a lovely message from somebody who's who's with us today from Berlin, um, from Germany, and um, is sending um, their regards to both of you, well, to all of us, uh, but certainly to you, Anne-Marie and Sharon, and, and want to thank you for um, for just being very honest today and just really talking about um, what, what it's really like um, on the front line there. Um, Sharon, any last words, Anne-Marie, any last words before we close today? I I just think this is this is not just a random hour, something special has happened. I can't read all what's going on, I've seen things popping up. There's a conversation started and I think we don't stop it. It's not just a one-off, yeah. let's keep it going, I think. Yeah, and Marie. Yeah, I suppose, again, back to the importance of having the conversations and having them safely and then openly yeah. uh, in the public forum. So I'm here today in this public forum hopefully representing the colleagues, certainly using their words, you know, mm -hmm. repeating what they've told me and said, look, that we want this to be shared. The next version of this maybe interestingly would be themselves, you know, yeah. people, because I'm, I'm acutely aware of that. Yeah. I don't have that frontline emergency response experience. I'm here to represent what our organization is trying to do and to give voice to, to what we're trying to do to support each other but yeah there it certainly would be useful to hear i've tried my best to share what people have told me and and sharon you're doing that expertly what what you've been told what you've heard but maybe the next version would be themselves because certainly top box is popping up people with experience people absolutely. living this working it absolutely and we Sharon, thank you so much for today. It's been wonderful. And I knew that time was going to fly, but we have actually managed to address most of the things that people asked us to talk about. So thank you so much. Thank you so much to the Speakers Collective for hosting um, this conversation today. If you want um, more information on the Speakers Collective or you want to get in touch with myself, uh, with Dr. Sharon McDonnell or with Anne-Marie McStocker here, we're all on Twitter. So feel free to find us. Our uh, Twitter names will be being put in the chat as we speak. So you can find us all on Twitter and we would love to carry on the conversation with you. Um, we would like you to, if you any of what we've talked about today um, has has kind of you know brought things up for you or you feel as if you want to speak to somebody um, then please contact the Samaritans or please go on and um, the Hub of Hope um, which is free and it's an online directory of resources. Thank you so much for today. I just want to extend my sincere thank you Anne-Marie to you and to you Dr Sharon McDonnell. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this meaningful conversation. To find out more about the Speakers Collective, visit speakerscollective.org and don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on this podcast. Thank you.